0: Uh, Will you open your Bible to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark? We'll be in Mark Chapter Six. Mark Chapter Six. How was the last two years for you in ministry? One pastor said, quote, I don't need this anymore, close quote. A religious news article done for Associated Press described this pastor as a 46-year-old wise-cracking, self-depreciating, Bible-loving, 20-year veteran in pastoral ministry who called it quits last year. The title of the article was, For Some Pastors, the Past Year Was Too Much to Bear. And I wonder if you had a similar difficulty in the last few years uh, whether it was ministering in the the pandemic or the great reset we report you decide <laughs> whatever it was many ministers struggled mightily and many churches felt the brunt of disunity and i'm sure that among your colleagues in ministry, you've seen some of the statistics fleshed out in real life. According to the Hartford Institute of Religious Research, 1,700 clergy left pastoral ministry every month in the last few years. Another statistic, 83% of clergy, their spouses Surveyed said they want their husband to leave pastoral ministry as soon as possible. Of these same pastors surveyed, fifty percent of them said that they would leave ministry if there was any other way they could make a living. a different survey said that 90 percent ...of clergy in all denominations will not stay in ministry long enough to reach a retirement age. And there's lots of reasons for this kind of fatigue and difficulty in pastoral ministry. 90% of pastors said that they're worn out, working 55 to 75 hours per week on average. 80% said ministry has negatively affected their families... Another 90% said they felt inadequately trained to cope with the demands of ministry. And 70% said they do not have anyone that they consider a close friend. My intention in sharing those statistics with you is obviously to encourage you. Because the last few years have been hard enough. But I find these to be not just statistics, but I know people who have struggled mightily in this season. And something about the difficulties that we've faced has exposed perhaps things that were already there. And I think one of the things that's been exposed, besides the the normal disunity we deal with in in local churches, what's been exposed is is wrong expectations in ministry. And I found a passage in the Gospel of Mark recently in my journey through this wonderful gospel that I I found to be the perfect adjustment of expectation. Expectation. And I want to look at this passage together with us this afternoon, a passage that I think is intended to shape our thinking about ministry, a passage that I think inspired by the Spirit and and included by Mark in his wisely and carefully arranged gospel that is intended for Christians and especially their, their leaders, for disciples and ministers to Hear what Mark is communicating through his depiction of the ministry of the Lord as informed by the, the testimony of Peter, most likely, in Mark's gospel. And I think it is a passage that is intended to shape our thinking about ministry, to adjust our expectations, to consider our inadequacies, to think about clearly our goals, and to adjust our expectations. It's a passage that does not have a perfect correlation to ministry today. It's Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. It's a familiar passage. It's one of the moments where Jesus commissions his disciples as apostles and sends them out on a short-term excursion. They were called in chapter 1, verse 16 of Mark. They were taught... In chapter 4, verse 10. They were designated in chapter 3, verse 3. And now our Lord is sending them out on their first preaching tour. He's training them by trial. He's showing that this isn't going to be a a one man ministry. The Lord Himself invests in these men, gives them uh, sacred responsibility, commissions them, and In their sending, he makes them representatives, sent out ones. And I think in looking at the the principles in this passage, we can be instructed in how we should think about ministry, whether seasons are seasons of blessing and, and ease, or more often seasons of difficulty, division, and trouble. So let's look at At this passage in Mark, I think that's intended to adjust our expectations in ministry. I have three headings. The first, verses 7 through 13. Let's call it the call to ministry is one of emulation. The call to ministry is one of emulation. Mark chapter 6, starting in the second half of verse 6, it says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but... Only bring one tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. In Jesus' commissioning of these disciples in his final public ministry in the region of Galilee, he shows us something about ministry. And though our ministry doesn't correlate exactly to this particular sending In other words, I think it's okay that you brought more than a toothbrush to Shepherds Conference. (laughs) There are truths here, especially this, what I think is central truth in this, this paragraph, verses 7 through 13, that show us that their ministry looks like the ministry of the Lord in significant and notable ways. So how How do they and how do we emulate the Lord in our mission, in our ministry? So that we'd have the the right expectations of what ministry is and and what's to come of it. Well, I think the first notable aspect of their their ministry of emulation is in the teaching that their Lord has modeled for them. It's in his teaching. You see that in the second half of verse 6. Jesus went around teaching from village to village. See, it's Jesus's teaching that has been Mark's focus for all six chapters so far. And much can be said about Jesus's ministry being a ministry of of presence, an incarnate ministry, a ministry of confirmation with supernatural signs and wonders, with a ministry of compassion, with extraordinary and remarkable healings. But Mark continues to remind us that Jesus, more than anything else, was known as a teacher, a preacher. The crowds marveled at the authority in which he he taught, and he had a particular way of teaching that made both his incarnate ministry, his present ministry, his healing power, miraculous ministry, all be notable In and of themselves, but his teaching ministry was what set him apart more than anything else. They were marveling at his teaching. You see, Jesus' teaching was the defining element of his ministry. And what kind of a preacher was Jesus? Well, he was biblical, he was vivid. He was powerful, he was prophetic, he was bold, he was practical, crystal clear, spirit-empowered, he was illustrative, he was uncompromising, uh, authoritative. He he talked about so many things. His confidence in scripture came out when he talked about uh, sermons on murder and anger and oaths and loving your neighbor and hypocrisy and uh, the nature of prayer. And he used so many different Elements of life that his audience was familiar with, talking about cities and sheep and towers and wars and birds and flowers. He spoke in a a simple style with great and powerful effect. People were gripped by his teaching. Every confidence in his teaching was in the scriptures. And repeatedly he would say, "Do, do you not know that the scriptures say And because his teaching was bold and uncompromising, it was so often offensive to the religious leaders. Without fail, he would would cause them so much consternation. And he taught, and he taught, and he taught. And so it makes sense that since God sent his son to be a preacher... That his son, when he would send his associates, his apostles, his emissaries, he would make sure that they were teachers. And that's exactly what we see in our text. Jesus modeled teaching for them in verse 6 and and everywhere prior from the the call of these men to their employment in this gospel mission. and, And they go out teaching with the same authority that Jesus taught with. Verse 11, they were to be listened to because they were talking, communicating, and preaching, and teaching. And verse 12 tells us that's exactly what they did. They went out and preached that people should repent. God gave his son and made him a preacher, and his son makes those who follow him in ministry preachers. This is a simple point, but it's important when preaching is not in vogue, when other things are offered to the church to be a a part of their diet. Men, Jesus would have you to be a preacher, a preacher of the word of God because Jesus was a preacher. And not only was his, his teaching something that they were emulating, they would have taught like Jesus taught in his, his manner and style as a preacher, sent as preachers, but they would have modeled his authority as well. Look at verse 7 calling the 12 to him. He sent them out two by two. That was in accordance with uh, Deuteronomic law. There was supposed to be two witnesses to attest to the truthfulness of anything. Uh, there was companionship in a in a plural ministry, a team ministry. It's, it's one of the things that you're well aware of being in a place like this with so many like-minded brothers. Some of you serve faithfully and alone, and, and a week like this is, is life-giving to your soul because you're together. We understand why, Jesus sent them two by two, but look what he gave to them in these pairs. He gave them authority over evil spirits. Exousia, this, this word that was the, the hallmark of Jesus' teaching and the hallmark of, of how he conducted himself, and as Jesus sends these commissioned ones, they go with his authority. You see, when they were first called in chapter 3, it says that Jesus called these disciples to himself. Now, not to his cause, not just to his mission, but their first calling was to himself. And so their relationship with Jesus was one that would have endued them the authority of Jesus, and now Jesus will send them in his name and in his authority. They weren't to go out and do something new. They were not to be innovative. It wasn't an entrepreneurial spirit that was to be commended. They were merely participating in his authority. They were doing what the Lord had done. They were to continue what he has been doing. I think part of the great pressure of ministry today is those who are trying to innovate the gospel. Trying to make, let's do something new. Let's do something attractive. Let's do something Culturally sensitive or or irrelevant or when Jesus simply sent these men and, and told them to preach and to preach with his authority, they went and they represented him. And with them, they had his message on their lips, the authority of God himself, and they brought with them a foretaste of the world to come because their authority was specifically over evil spirits, a demonstration that the messianic kingdom was here. And so as they came, they came not only with the teaching of Jesus, but endued with his power and able to demonstrate the truthfulness of their message by showing the authority of God over the fallen realm of this world. And so Jesus gave them authority over evil spirits, representing him and giving everyone who would Hear them and host them, a foretaste of the world to come. And as they cast out demons, they saw this was a breakthrough to the messianic age. And so they went with his teaching in emulation. They went with his authority. Not only that, verses 8 through 11, they went with his instructions. And these instructions are interesting, aren't they? Verse 8, take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. I mean, some of you, you you know, are bad packers. Maybe you're like me, a bad packer. And your wife got you, you know, your bag taken care of. I know that's the case with Dr. Lawson. <laughs> but it's as if they set out everything they need on the bed and they just take one jacket, that's it. I mean, this is... This seems to be an unwise way to just travel. But Jesus is insistent that they have four things and only four things a belt, sandals, one tunic or undergarment, and a stick. Okay, go. You have a stick. And one pair of chonies. <laughs> and one belt. And at least they got to wear shoes, I guess. And commentators look at this and they're they're a little little concerned and, and they, they want to contribute something unique to uh, their contribution. And they say, Well, this is because Jesus was was, was mirroring or parroting the, the cynic, peripatetic philosopher teachers. And you could read about them, and, and they, they also traveled light, but they actually didn't wear any shoes. And they were anti-authoritarian and anti-civilization. They were kind of you know uh, precursors to the hippies. And that's not what these men were. In fact, the reason they have a staff belt sandals and one tunic, I think more than anything else is because that's exactly what the children of Israel were to take with them when they left Egypt. I think the the identical instructions in Exodus 12, 11 show that they are wearing what Their forefathers wore to show the significance and the seismic nature of their mission. There's something greater than the exodus happening here. And then there's obvious correlations as well. They go without encumbrance. They go without a backup plan. They go in total reliance. What they have with them, a staff, a belt, sandals, and one tunic, it shows that they're going with peace. They're defenseless. They have an obvious trust and dependence on God built into their lack of equipment. There's an urgency as they go. There's a vulnerability, a reliance. These disciples were not very well prepared. In his fine commentary, James R. Edwards says it this way. The sending of the 12 appears premature, and may catch us by surprise, for the record of the disciples to date has not been reassuring. Heretofore, they have impeded Jesus' mission, become exasperated with him, and even opposed him. Their perception of Jesus has been and will continue to be marked by misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. The willingness of Jesus to abide the intractable nature and behavior of his followers is further testimony to his divine humility. The sending of these particular individuals and at this stage of their understanding of Jesus, testifies to the beleaguered believers in Mark's church. Indeed, to believers of every age that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. You see, if Jesus is the one who sent you, all you need is a stick just in case there's a dog along the way or something like that. Just to kind of prop you up because your hip's getting a little tricky. You just need a stick. One tunic will do. God will provide the rest. And so here you have these disciples in An obvious dependence on God, ill-prepared in some ways, but totally ready because Jesus is the one that sent them. Inadequate in and of themselves, but adequate because they're operating on the authority of Christ, unequipped in so many ways, but equipped in the ways that matter the most because Jesus has sent them. You want to prevent burnout in ministry? Just remember who put you there. This wasn't like a great career choice for you. That must be clear by now. Right? I mean, did you hear the statistic where they would quit, but they can't do anything? I don't know how to build anything. I can't teach math. My kids are in high school. I can't do math. And so I don't do this because it's the only thing I can do. I'm sure that In-N-Out would hire me. I know their product well. (laughs) I do this and I keep doing this and you keep persevering and you keep preaching and you keep shepherding and you keep pouring out your soul to people and you keep evangelizing because Jesus sent you. And that's where your adequacy is found. There's nothing in their appearance or resources. It's just the simplicity of their message. And you hear their message presented to us in verse 12. They went out and preached, proclaimed that people should repent. And there it is. We sang about faith and faith is is that one thing that connects us to God savingly. And repentance is is that other side of the coin that reminds us what is most vital to a religion for sinners. Everyone's got a conscience and everyone has offended God and everyone needed to be warned that it was time to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah and so they went and they preached that it was time to repent. The same thing that Jesus preached Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is so vital. And it was the message that marked, it's the summary word to mark the the preaching of Jesus in these early days. And it's exactly the message that was on their lips because they heard the Lord preach repentance. And they went in his manner and likeness. The instructions given about hospitality, uh, so relevant in an ancient world, even into New Testament times when you read uh, John's latter epistles, and he talks about the entertaining of, of true teachers and not false teachers. This was common even in Jesus's day. Uh, the instructions given about dusting off their feet, this was to show how urgent their message was, what, how sober-minded they were, how electrifying this message was how consequential this message was uh, an orthodox Jew would would dust himself off when he crossed the border to come back into Israel and they were to do that in Jewish cities that rejected them basically saying it's just like gentile land there dusting off their feet their shoes and they come in his manner and his likeness and they come with his instructions and in their peculiar way and he come they come with his authority and they come with his teaching and they are attended by his power and his authority and i think that's what mark wants us to understand about being sent and when we receive the, the commission in Matthew 28, it's, it's far more general, isn't it? Less specific instructions, but still the same authority, the same teaching, the same message of faith and repentance, A uh, focus on the manner and likeness of Jesus, specific instructions to, to teach all I have commanded you, to baptize them. And so the things that are are corollary, I think, become very clear. And and Mark wants us to understand that the call to ministry involves one of emulating Jesus. We are to minister in the same manner and style as Jesus. But that's not where this story concludes. Not in the way that Mark put it. Not in the way that the Spirit inspired it. Instead, in classic Markan style, he provides a story within a story, something that literary types call an intercalation, better known as a Markan sandwich, or in L.A., tortas de Marcos, <laughs> and it's just, it's just a story within a story. It happens all the time in, in Mark. Mark. He loves these. The fig tree is cursed by Jesus and then he cleanses the temple and then they go back and the fig tree is withered. This isn't just a mere chronology. There's something about the corruptness of the temple and the cursing of the tree that inform that center story to the edges. Whether it's the the healing of Jairus' daughter being interrupted by the the issue of the the woman with blood and then a return to the daughter. There's something being taught by Mark in his careful and purposeful arrangement of these stories. Something in the middle is telling you something about the end because the conclusion of their commissioning doesn't occur until verse 30. So what's in the middle? Well, if the call to ministry is one of emulation in verses 7 through 13, the voice of ministry is one of courage and is one that is courageous and uncompromising in the story of the beheading of John the Baptist that intentionally follows this one in verse 14 to 29. Now, I want to stay at altitude here. Uh, We're not allowed to use PowerPoint at this church. I was going to put up the Herodian dynasty and do 30 minutes on that, but... Uh, you use PowerPoint in this pulpit. MacArthur comes in, depart from me, I never knew you. <laughs> so we summarize. The only PowerPoint we do is the Lawsonian PowerPoint. That's... So, what's this middle section? This middle section is a beautiful reminder of the best one. This is the best one. Twelve are getting sent, but one has been working for a long time, prepared before his birth to point to Jesus. And of all who will ever point to Jesus, he's one of the finest examples. According to Jesus, Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, among those born of women there is no one like John. And so Mark gives us a flashback. Look at it. King Herod verse 14, heard about this You see, it's connected to what we just read in verse 13. Heard about the miraculous casting out of demons, the anointing of sick people with oil, the healing that attended their preaching of repentance. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard of this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, must have been raised from the dead. Verse 17, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man and when Herod heard John he was greatly puzzled and yet he liked to listen to him. What a mistake we would make if we didn't think that the example of John the Baptist is intended to accompany everyone who Jesus sends. Look at his ministry. There's no one like Cousin John. He doesn't care that Herod the Great had 10 wives. He doesn't care about Antipas, uh, the Tetrarch, who calls himself king. He doesn't care if he's the seventh son of Herod the Great, his brother Philip, the... uh, Denise and the, the whole mess of Herodians. John cares about righteousness. That's what John cares about. John cares about holiness. John cares about people preparing themselves because Jesus is here. The one who he is unworthy to untie his sandal. John wants everybody ready for Jesus. He doesn't care if you're a debauched, Herodian semi-king. He wants you to know that God demands perfect righteousness and that the Son of Man, the one the prophets have longed for and talked about, is actually here. He is going to restore everything that God promised. He is going to bring about a kingdom where God will be exalted on a throne. This is John's preeminent concern. John is not worried about reaching retirement age. John is not concerned if people think his ministry is relevant to common cultural concerns. John is zero regard for being well-liked. It shows in his hygiene and diet. (laughs) He doesn't care because he cares about righteousness and he cares about pointing at Jesus and no one does it better. You know, there's only two passages in Mark that are not about Jesus. The first in chapter one, which is his description of John's ministry, and this one. These are significant passages that point to the boldness, the uncompromising nature, the unflagging courage of John the Baptist. And this little intercalation, this little story within a story is intended not to scare us, but to embolden us and make us aware and give us an example of the greatest who have ever done it. Because John is the Lord's forerunner and he's going to be his forerunner in death. As the story unfolds, Mark isn't known for... Providing so much detail. He usually moves with with extraordinary pace and timing and immediacy. But this story has ground to a halt because John's martyrdom is worth our attention. And his example is supposed to be carried in front of our eyes every day we go to serve and represent Jesus. And here you have Herod. And even Herod has a conscience. And Herod liked to listen to John. He got a kick out of it. He was sort of interested in Judaism. And he was definitely interested in the miraculous and the prophetic. And so he'd drag him out of the dungeon in his his desert fortress. Still there, you can go into it. It's a pit in the ground. He was just chained up down there. And Herod would drag him out to entertain Let his conscience feel a little something, and then throw him back in the hole. And then one day he gives himself a birthday party. Who gives himself a birthday party? For his high officials, military commanders, leading men of Galilee. It's a bunch of dudes in this thing. And they bring in a a girl to dance. Historians tell us it was Salome, the daughter of Herodias. One commentator says that Herodias realizes that her marriage certificate in this incestuous, uh, adulterous relationship she has with Herod will not be really validated until it's validated by the blood of John the Baptist. So she's plotting against him from the start. And she sends her daughter in to this foul crowd of men for this Bacchanalian feast and festival. And she dances. And the king says, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And so she leaves and goes and finds her mother and and her mother tells her exactly what she wants. She wants the head of John the Baptist. The girl hurries back in with the request. And it's, it's ugly. It's wicked. In Greek, it's like this. I desire that you give me immediately on a platter the head of John the baptizer. I mean, just intentionally put in such a way to hold that drama out. I desire that you give me immediately on a platter, the head of John the baptizer. And so this ugly feast ends in an awful tragedy. The one voice who didn't care if you were a Tetrarch or a wannabe king or if you could cut their head off. J.C. Ryle says a friendless, solitary preacher with no other weapon than God's truth disturbs and terrifies a king. And he did that. Herod was afraid. But Herod was more afraid of what his friends would think. He didn't want to get rid of John apparently, but he felt like he was trapped in the situation. And so in great distress, verse 26 But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Ugly, murderous, tragic. They sawed off John's head. Tyrants always despise righteousness. And sinners will do anything to silence a voice that insists on the righteousness that God insists upon. And John is gone. Herod, pathetic and weak. John, bold, courageous, uncompromising, meets his end. MacArthur says it this way, you can be faithful or you can be popular, but you can rarely be both. And now John is gone. Put that next to the call to emulate Jesus. Put it right next to it. Because what this paragraph teaches us, what this interrupting story instructs us on, it shows us That yes, we call, we were called to go and speak on behalf of our Lord. And we do so with his authority and his power and his instructions and his message. And we ought to do it like John does it with courage and boldness, not afraid of what the cost might be. It could cost us everything, our lives. Verse 29, on hearing of this, John's disciples come, this tender scene, take his body, so lovely and sad. It's the only decency in all of this story. And they lay him in a tomb. And with no further comment, verse 30 says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Third point, the work of the ministry is invincible. But what does John's death really show us? I think it's more than just that bold voice. It's that whatever we do for Jesus cannot be stopped. I think it shows us that the one who pointed to Jesus more than anyone else pointed to Jesus when his life was snuffed out He did not fail to fulfill his ministry expectations. He had already said that I must decrease and he must increase. And every real, bold, uncompromising preacher feels the same way. What are your ministry expectations? What are your five to 10 year goals? Would anyone put a platter on there? Because that's how John ended. And what we learn about ministry in this passage, about ministry that perseveres, about the right kind of expectations and methods in our ministry is the call to ministry often is accompanied by a plattered head. The call to ministry is accompanied by a plattered head. Mission and martyrdom are inseparable. That discipleship and death go hand in hand. And though John's voice is silenced, his blood will call out from the ground along with blood that comes at the end of the Gospel of Mark. A blood far more perfect. A blood that atones. But a blood that also will show every disciple who follows that it might cost them their blood as well. And like Tertullian said, that that blood becomes a seed and the church grows from it. And so we follow Jesus and we know that though we have this voice of of boldness and of uncompromise, we we know the work that he's going to do through us is, is ultimately invincible. We trust that we follow Jesus and as we emulate his teaching and his manner and his likeness, we often will need to also emulate his death. That's why the Apostle Paul said that the death of Christ was manifest in him. It's why we understand that the ultimate cost of ministry is the ultimate cost of discipleship in those famous words, to come and die. That's why the hinge point of this book comes in the two chapters later, 845. It says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, the call to ministry needs to be seen in light of a plattered head. Just a few weeks ago, our beloved missionaries who serve in the in the Slavic world. We have two families in Ukraine right now. And they were warned months ago by the consulate that they they couldn't be protected. Dear, precious people, they've been serving there, part of our church, they've been serving there for 30 years. And as they prayerfully considered the option. They had every right and they had the resources and the ability and no one would have faulted them if they would have gone to the airport and flown home. But they both wrote to us and said, we want to stay. We want to be here for the churches." We want to see this through because they understood that their expectation when they signed up, when they were three decades younger than they are now, when they had no idea what what the future would hold for that country and for their training and investment in ministry and in training preachers and in representing Jesus in a place that needs the gospel desperately, they understood the ultimate cost of discipleship and they said, this isn't about preserving our lives. This is about representing our Lord. And they stayed and they've been shelled for two weeks now. And the other day, J-Mac's in the office, and he's got the Zoom out, and he's praying with them, and they're huddled in the bathroom because they can't have any light showing. It's the middle of the night, and they're talking to Mac, and I will never forget this moment when one of their precious wives said, they was given prayer requests, and Max the best, he's just saying, What what can we send you? You want money? We'll send you money. I mean, they give you money. Whatever you need, what do you need? And and this precious lady said, If we don't make it out, will you care for our single daughter? We check on her. Of course. Of course we will. Because the ultimate cost of ministry is the ultimate cost of discipleship. And when we are called to emulate Jesus, we may be called to have our head served on a plate. And you know what happens next? The cross and the resurrection. John the Baptist is more alive now than he's ever been. And he can't have any grasshoppers until God brings him to the new heavens and the new earth. And I don't know that they'll have them there, but there'll be something better than grasshoppers for John. And John will look you and me in the eyes as we persevere in pastoral ministry. And he'll scratch his neck and he'll say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your your good grace manifest in your word. It always opens our eyes. It always shows us parts of our heart that need repentance, that need examination. As you adjust our expectations, oh God, help us to Serve with zeal. Give us grace to persevere, not in our own strength, but by faith in the Son of God who who died for us and sits at your right hand and intercedes. Thank you, God, for this conference, this time where we can be together, be encouraged in your word, and press on in partnership for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.